Yo Pots. Check out Meet Mitch and Leawood for award-winning barbecue, outstanding atmosphere, and your destination to watch all your favorite March Madness action. Tailgating for opening day? Place your order online and pick up on way to the game. Meet Mitch Barbecue, East 95th and Mission in Ranch Martin North Shopping Center. Garrettson and Toth presents The Shift with Jack Johnson on ESPN Kansas City. 1510 a.m. at 94.5 FM. It is Friday, and it's another edition of The Shift on 94.5 FM and 1510 a.m. ESPN Kansas City. I am your host, Jack Johnson, alongside Marco Marquez. Shout out to our presenting sponsors, starting with Gerritsen and Toth. They handle the most complex felony, federal, or state criminal defense cases. You'll find them in doing that successfully helping criminal defendants all over the Kansas City area and Northeast Kansas for years. Also be sure to visit Kim Howard and Associates Agency at 150 Metcalf in Overland Park or give Kim and her team a call at 913-649-2002. That's 913-649-2002 for a quote on your home and auto insurance today. And if you call that number and mention that you heard their ad here on The Shift, it will give you a free $10 gift card to Starbucks to use on whatever you would like, coffee, tea, breakfast items. It's your $10, so all you got to do is call that number at 913-649-2002 and mention that you heard their ad here on The Shift. I promise we will talk some Chiefs football here in the opening segment, but we do have some breaking news involving the Kansas City Royals, and I do think it is somewhat of a big story. That per their Twitter account, they are officially going back to the all-powder blue look. Now, I don't know if this means just for opening day. You can go to the Royals' Twitter account now, and the caption is, We heard you, with a bunch of clips of the Royals wearing all-powder blues. Powder blue top, powder blue pants, and then it just says, Opening day 2023. So I don't know if that means they'll just wear it for one game or for the rest of the season. My hunch is the rest of the season, because why would you break out powder blue pants only for one game? Uh, So imagine that the Royals now have completely stepped into what the fans want because I think for what 20 years more than 20 years 30 years fans have been wanting that uniform to come back and listen I love the Royals new uniforms the ones they broke out last year uh, the the blue tops the royal blue tops with Kansas City across the front the, the home uniforms didn't change all they have is a Nike swoosh above their their title of the Royals on the chest then you have the powder blue look but you had white pants and they look sharp but an all powder blue look is different And I'm hoping they change what's written across the chest as well. You can't have Royals there. It's got to be Kansas City if you're going to go all out. It's got to be the exact same old uniform they used to wear back in the 80s. A great look by the Royals. I can't wait to see if they can leak these before opening day or if they're just going to unveil them on opening day. Not really sure, but I guess that is the best possibilities you can get for the Kansas City Royals uniform combo because that is by far and away the best uniforms they've ever had. Uh, They may be the best uniforms this city has ever seen. Involving the Chiefs, involving the Kansas City Kings, I think the powder blue, the all-powder blue look for the Royals uh, is top tier. In fact, it's top tier in all of baseball. There's some really good uniforms out there. I think the baby blues, the powder blues the Royals have, maybe I'm biased, are top five in baseball. But I'm also a powder blue guy. I love the way that the Toronto Blue Jays powder blue looks you know, in college basketball, I love the Carolina blue. No, I love the Oilers look, the Houston Oilers, that is. I just think powder blue looks fantastic, and it especially looks fantastic in baseball. 
So it appears the Royals are bringing back their old-school look of the all-powder blues. But as I did say earlier to open up the show, we are going to talk some Chiefs football. And we're not going to be previewing the Super Bowl. We're not going to be looking back at the AFC Championship game. What we're going to be doing is looking back over this season. And I think every Super Bowl winner or every Super Bowl team has certain games along the way that define them. That you go back to and say, if they don't win that game, or if they don't lose that game, they don't stand where they are today. And I think the Chiefs had one of the more unique 14-win seasons in the NFL. Like, this was not really a 14-win team. But when you have a franchise-slash-Hall of Fame quarterback, you have a Hall of Fame head coach, you're able to overcome a lot of those things. Uh, There were games this year where if you take... For example, I would even say Jalen Hurts on this team. And I think Jalen Hurts is a phenomenal quarterback. But there were a couple of times that if you were to put Jalen Hurts on the Chiefs, I think they lose those games. There's very few quarterbacks that can replicate, can emulate Patrick Mahomes. And you go to some of their losses this year. Uh, What had to go wrong? But also, can you look back at a loss in the NFL and say it's a good loss? It defined you. It led you to go on a tear. Go back to the Chiefs' last Super Bowl in 2020. Earlier that year, remember they lost to Tennessee in Nashville. Blew a big lead in the second half. Harrison Butker's kick was blocked at the end of regulation. And the Chiefs never lost for the rest of the season. That was a defining moment because that team sat at 6-5. and five, And Patrick Mahomes had just come off injury. People were questioning, can they make it to the postseason now? Are they a team that can go on a tear? And they did. They never lost again that season. So there's always those moments in the season that define you. And I have a list of five here. I'm going to go down the schedule, and I'm going to pinpoint just exactly where those defining moments were. And I'll be honest with you. A handful of them are before the bye week. So I may even go above five. But I do have five cemented right now on what defined the Kansas City Chiefs season. Number one, it's not too much of a shock. It was on the road in week three against the Indianapolis Colts. You had just won your first two games of the season. You beat the Cardinals 44-21. to And that was a defining moment, but not in my top five. No, first game without Tyreek Hill, the offense hangs 40-plus on the road. Yeah, that's pretty impressive. Then you beat the Chargers in your home opener. Jalen Watson with the 100-yard pick six. You had the talk all offseason about how the Chargers were better than you, they were going to win the division, they were going to go to the Super Bowl, and you handled them. Not in my top five. A defining moment to me was the Colts game because the offense played horribly, the running game was bad, the defense made critical mistakes, Chris Jones had the taunting penalty, special teams the disaster, Sky Moore muffed the punt, Matt Amendola missed an extra point and a kick, there was the fake field goal. Everything possible went wrong. But I also think it was one of those losses that's important to go back on. Because everybody in the offseason wanted to see the Chiefs have a downfall. They were waiting for that game to point to and go, that's how they're going to be without Tyreek Hill. And that was the talk for the rest of that week. On Monday morning when we came in here and we talked about this game, we did address the situation that There are going to be games this season where the Chiefs lose because they simply didn't have Tyreek Hill. I believe I said if the Chiefs had Tyreek Hill in that game, they win. Just because it's an extra weapon. And I said you can't rely on Juju and MVS and Sky Moore to 
shoulder that offensive workload, to take on that offensive workload. And Tyreek Hill took a lot of pressure off Patrick Mahomes. But it was a defining moment because this team could have sat back and said, yeah, well, maybe we aren't going to be as good as next year. We want to make the postseason, but, man, losing to Indianapolis in week three, it is early. But that was Matt Ryan and the Colts. And you shut down Jonathan Taylor. You were just beat straight up by Matt Ryan. And as we saw with the Colts, they turned into one of the worst teams in the NFL by the end of it. But that loss doesn't really matter. The loss in the record doesn't really matter. But what came out of that loss is important. Because the Chiefs had to immediately respond. Which leads me to my second defining moment of the season, which was the following week. Sunday night football in Tampa against Tom Brady. There was the hurricane earlier that week, so the Chiefs didn't know if they were going to be playing in Tampa. They were going to be playing in a neutral site. Uh, You maybe talk about Minnesota, New Orleans, Atlanta. Didn't really know where you were going to play. And the Chiefs were going into that game with the pressure of, man, you just lost to the Colts. Now you're playing a much better team, a team with Tom Brady. You're back in the same spot where you lost to the Super Bowl two years before that. It was a place you were stepping into, a point in the season you were stepping into, wondering, uh, what is going to change? How can we overcome some of this adversity? And the Chiefs sent a message to the rest of the NFL. They sent a very strong message to the NFL that they were not going to ever replicate again what happened in Week 3. Not their offense, not their defense. They weren't going to make the dumb penalties. And the Chiefs waxed Tampa Bay and Tom Brady on their own turf. Now it was 41-31, but there was a lot of late scores by the Buccaneers. The Chiefs controlled that game for all four quarters. Patrick Mahomes was magnificent. The defense was pretty good in forcing turnovers. Special teams didn't really have too many big blunders, but they hung 40-plus again. And for the second time in four games, the Chiefs' offense put up an absurd amount of points. Points you should really only see in college. But they get 41 against Tampa Bay. That, I think, to me, was one of the back-on-track type of wins and one of the more significant back-on-track type of wins that we had seen in the Patrick Mahomes era. Because it was so early and because they had to respond so quickly, you had to go back on the road, go to Tampa Bay, Go to the team that humiliated you in the Super Bowl. And if Tom Brady would have won, and the last time he ever played Patrick Mahomes, it would have been a stinger, I think, for the legacy as well. That he'd always be compared to to Tom Brady, Patrick Mahomes, that is. And Patrick Mahomes in his prime wasn't able to have a winning record against an aging, slower, not as strong, not as superstar-like version of Tom Brady. That would have stung his legacy a bit. But Patrick Mahomes finished with a 500 record against Tom Brady. Now his two losses, or his three losses, two of them were the biggest in his career. Losing in the AFC Championship game in year one as a starter. And of course losing in the Super Bowl at Raymond James Stadium in 2021. But it was a defining moment to me in the season to know that, you know what, this offense is going to be fine. It is going to be more than fine. And that takes me to two weeks later. Defining moment number three. You play Buffalo at home. You just come off back-to-back wins, Tampa and Vegas. You overcame a 17-0 deficit in Vegas, not in my top five. Losing to Buffalo, though, 
was very telling. I was at that game in person. Bill's Mafia showed up. They packed the stadium. It was a great game from start to finish. Saw the defense make some big plays. But then when that game was over, I'll never forget this image of what I saw in the stadium. Usually in Chiefs' losses at Arrowhead Stadium, you got people that are drunk. There may be some fights. There may be, may be some beer thrown on somebody. I mean, if that many people in the stadium, you're telling me you've never seen somebody dump beer on someone, it's happened before. Not saying it happens in every single section, but I've seen games before where fans get out of hand. And that was maybe the most calm I had ever seen Arrowhead from where I was sitting, from the section I was in. And maybe I was just in a great section. But the lasting image I saw as I was leaving the stadium was Bills fans that had flooded down to the front row of the stadium, had their flags, had their Bills stocking caps on, their Bills coats, the Bills gloves decked out head to toe, and they're chanting and they're screaming and some people are embracing and the Bills players are back out on the field. And I looked at it and I said, this really was the Bills Super Bowl. They needed this so badly. Not to make an excuse for a loss, but as I was seeing Chiefs fans leave the stadium, a lot of them were expressionless, some disappointment, but I did hear one guy say, we're going to see him again. They can have this, we're going to see him again. And, yeah, I think everybody can say that. You can always have that hope that you'd run into them again, but it's not always believable. But me personally, I took it as, you know, that is a stinger of a loss. You never want to lose to a rival, not a division rival, but you know, a rival that is considered equal to you because you know what comes about in the national media after that game. Oh, Josh Allen's better. The Bills are better. They're the other team to beat. They're the top dog in the AFC. But the Chiefs fans, and I think the Chiefs themselves, looked at it as, we got to get better. They are a better team right now, but we know we're going to have to go through them again. At some point, they are going to have an impact on our postseason. We're going to have to go through that team one way or another. And you left that stadium going, we're not where you want to be, but you lost to a very good football team, and we know it's not over. Bills fans took it as, we finally slayed the Dragon. But it was a Week 6 game. And I think in the back of most Bills fans' minds were, that felt really good, but the only way we're going to get the true respect is if we beat their ass in the postseason. We beat him in Orchard Park. We beat him in Arrowhead Stadium. Something is going to have to happen in the future for this feeling to go away. This feeling of dread of knowing Kansas City's around the corner. And I think Chiefs fans took pride in that. That you have a fan base that's constantly worried about where you're going to be if you have to go through them again. It feels good. Uh, think of it as you're facing a bully. You're facing a school bully. And you get one solid punch on him. And the fight is broken up. I think the Bills, though they're not this tiny, little, scrawny, nerdy guy, they did connect on the jaw of the Chiefs back in Week 6. And the Chiefs were rattled a little bit, but the fight was broken up. And he kind of felt like, man, uh, that bully may get me back at some point. That's what it felt like in Week 6. And that, I think, was the the culture showing itself in Kansas City. You're not going to get hung up on a Week 6 loss, the way New England never got hung up on regular season losses. They happen. It's the NFL. It's a tough league. You can't beat everybody. That's why there's only been one undefeated team since the 1970s. And that was the Miami Dolphins. Patriots came close, but still couldn't get it done. The NFL is that good of a league. Which leads me to my number four 
big, big moment of the season. I could pick San Fran. I could. But I want to at least have a couple after the bye week. So that 49ers win was really eye-opening. But at the time, I don't think anybody was looking at the 49ers in the way they did at the end of the season. They had Jimmy G out there. They were really banged up. And it's why the Chiefs scored 44 points. The Niners' defense was banged up. George Kittle was coming off injury. It was Christian McCaffrey's first game. That's why I'm going to stay away from that being a top-five moment. Because that Niners team was not the Niners team we saw in the NFC Divisional Round against Dallas. It just wasn't. It wasn't the same defense. wasn't the same offense. They had Christian McCaffrey. They had Brock Purdy. This 49ers team was just a little bit different. And early on in the season, they just weren't there yet. So that's why they're not in my top five. My fourth big moment was winning in L.A. against the Chargers on Sunday Night Football. A thrilling, thrilling showdown. And everybody knew, just like in the COVID year, I believe it was. Or no, it was last year, excuse me. How everybody knew that the Chiefs going into L.A., if they were to win, they'd win the division. They'd win the AFC West. If the Chargers were to win, now they've opened the door back up. And the Chargers were waiting and waiting and waiting for this rematch because they knew all offseason it was a talk of, you are the next team. You are the next top dog of the AFC West. You are better than Kansas City. You have a more well-rounded group. You have the better quarterback. And it was that over-my-dead-body type of game. That Patrick Mahomes said, it's not going to happen. And he led the team down the field with more than enough time to spare right before the end of regulation and finds Travis Kelsey about 15 yards out and he runs it in for the go-ahead touchdown to make it 30-27. to And the defense comes up with a big stop and they get an interception off Justin Herbert. To me, that moment was, all right, once again the AFC West is ours. But the team that was designed to beat you was the one that faltered. And they were the team once again that went 0-2 against you in the regular season. And even if they see you again, no, round three matchup wouldn't make Chiefs fans feel too good. You knew that you were their boogeyman. You were the team they felt like they could just never beat, the kryptonite. And to keep the Chargers in their place, that was important. Because they were the team that I think improved the most in the offseason. Defensively getting Khalil Mack. Defensively getting J.C. Jackson. Bringing back Mike Williams. This Chargers team was primed to go 12-5, 13-4. Now they made the postseason, but just barely. But for the Chiefs to sweep them in this type of year, this type of climate, it was different. It meant more on the season, which is why it was my number four biggest season-changing moment of 2022 and 2023. And lastly, number five on my list. It's funny that I already have two losses. Well, I'm going to add a third loss. And it was Cincinnati at Paycor Stadium, December 4th, when the Chiefs lost 27-24. It was the final loss to date of the Kansas City Chiefs season. From that point on, they have won six in a row. Or excuse me, seven in a row. They've beaten Denver, Houston, Seattle, Denver, Vegas, Jacksonville, Cincinnati from this point. But to lose to Cincinnati for the third consecutive time, everything that came with it, the trash talk that happened earlier in the week, the jawing back and forth, knowing that you wanted to avenge that loss from the AFC title game the year before, and the fact that you couldn't do that, it was a real gut-check moment for Kansas City. It was a moment in which you felt like, 
man, are we ever going to get this team? And you don't want to see them again in the postseason because if you do, they're going to beat you again. And they would hold that title of the top dog in the AFC. And Patrick Mahomes didn't play poorly, but the defense did. And now we know, after an AFC championship win after against Cincinnati, that the Chiefs were having a very vanilla game plan on defense, which is why they were not very good, at least as per, per Chris Jones. You know, you felt like they had the running game, but once again they abandoned it. You were just asking yourself, why does it continue to go wrong? Why can we not beat this team? And we saw this last week, that the Chiefs had a completely different message, different game plan, both on the field, off the field. They weren't jawing too much. They weren't talking too much, focused on the game. They let Cincinnati do all the talking. The players, the mayor, the coaches, let them do all the talking. And the Bengals were coming off the most impressive win of anybody in the postseason at Orchard Park in Buffalo. And that ties me back to my next point, right? Or my previous point, that Buffalo was always going to have a hand in the postseason on who Kansas City was going to play, whether it was them or somebody else. And the reason it mattered to Kansas City is Cincinnati came off that win in Buffalo and said, there's nobody that can beat us. Now, we already took care of Buffalo. Arrowhead's no different. The Chiefs are no different. And the Chiefs found a way to beat them. If the Chiefs win in Cincinnati, I I guess we'll never know if they also would have beaten them in the AFC title game, the, the different things at stake. But to lose back then and hear the criticism and to always know that you were 0-3, it fueled this team when it mattered more in January. You do not hang banners in October, November, or December. You just don't. Bad teams do that. Teams that are desperate do that. They make t-shirts. They make highlight films. They make intro videos with wins from the regular season or wins against Kansas City. Since Patrick Mahomes took over, it's all been about, can you show up in January? Can you get to the AFC Championship game? Can you get to the Super Bowl? And I think for a lot of teams, they live for just beating the Chiefs. That is kind of their whole goal, their identity. And it's not their bad teams. Because we think Cincinnati, we think Buffalo, we think the Chargers, we think the Ravens. They're very good football teams. Most of them well coached. But there's a reason that when you beat the Chiefs, it's a national story for a week. It just is. It's the same way that it was with New England. That when you beat the New England Patriots, it was a talking point. What's going on in New England? Is Tom Brady done? Is Bill Belichick done? We see this now all the time in Kansas City. That when Cincinnati beat them, well, they're 3-0 against the Chiefs now. now. The Chiefs just can't beat them. They're not good enough. You know, Buffalo beat them in Week 6. Well, they're the top dog. Kansas City's not good enough. They can't hang with, the, with Buffalo. Well, I mean, the Chiefs are the team that have a Super Bowl ring. Their quarterback has an MVP. It's going to be two now. He has a chance to win his second Super Bowl. At some point, it's not so much that the team is better than Kansas City. You just bested them at that time. But until you actually take them down in the postseason and go win a Super Bowl, you are the ones that are chasing them. It doesn't matter if you're 7-0 and or 0-7 against them. If you don't have that ring, and they do, they're the team you're chasing. That's just the way it goes in the NFL, which is why that week 
I guess that would have been week 13 or 14 loss to Cincinnati back on December 4th. That was defining. That was a a big-time defining moment in this season. The Chiefs have not lost since. And then you squeaked by Denver. You squeaked by Houston. You squeaked by Denver again. And you're going, is this team even good enough to make a run? And now we've seen in back-to-back weeks them beat Jacksonville, who is one of the hottest teams in the AFC, and, of course, take down their boogeyman in the Cincinnati Bengals 23-20, to which sets them up for a Sunday night showdown, next Sunday night, that is, against the number one seed in the NFC, the Philadelphia Eagles. Kickoff will be at 5.30. Marco, before we head to break, I listed five games there. I want you to add in another defining moment. This couldn't be something that happened on the field, off the field, an injury, who had to step up, a different game that I didn't mention, but I'll also allow you to double down. If you want to double down and pick one of those games, I'm totally fine with it. But if you do see another moment on that season, something that happened that put the Chiefs where they are today, I feel like this would be the opportune time to to maybe even add in something random because the Chiefs don't get to next Sunday night if it's not for the five games I just listed. But do you have another game? that you want to bring up there, something else that happened maybe in those games I mentioned. Uh, The floor is yours uh, to bring up something that defined the Chiefs in 2022-2023. Ah, man. Hitting off all the – I guess MVS having the performance that he did against Cincinnati, being the leading receiver in the regular season game, may have been a – shadowing foretelling of what to come or at least who to fall on when when you go up against that team uh, who to fall on in the AFC championship game because you were put in the position that you were where he became wide receiver one for uh for for the Chiefs so maybe that kind of moment for him against Cincinnati allowed the Chiefs not only to put the trust um, because he's a veteran receiver. He's played with Aaron Rodgers, an off, the, a quarterback that goes off script. It's something that's about timing between him and Mahomes that is going to get figured out, I believe, even more this offseason. And we could see a better connection next year as well. But that moment played into the AFC Championship game as well because he he had he had that game against the Bengals back in this back in January um, that kind of really allowed uh, the Chiefs to be like you know he got he racked up 90 yards against these guys once why not go back to the veteran receiver in a position in a time that we that the Chiefs needed to. Um, so I thought, I thought that I thought I, I always thought that game to me and MVS because that was one of the games this season where he not only was the leading receiver for the Chiefs but had accumulated uh, receiving yards above fifty um, across the regular season. So I thought for me that was a defining moment that we can look back on after what had happened on Sunday. Um, a moment, something that wasn't as stood out before, but now stands out um, much more um, fo- uh, following the results Sunday's game. There was there there, there was a lot. Um, hell, you can talk, you can pull things from this game this past Sunday that could show that that could lead to other things in the Super Bowl. 
Chiefs are still down a few receivers right now. Sky Moore may still have to be the punt returner come mm-hmm. Super Bowl. He may have to be a wide receiver three come Super Bowl if Juju's not ready. McCall Hartman doesn't seem like he's not he's not going to be ready. And then Kadarius Tony too, who we would all love to be ready, but let's get real. He too has not played as many snaps uh, as a chief. So that, 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 those two games for Valdez Scantling, I, they, they just, it's one of those things where you don't know what you're watching until later on. Then you go back and you're like, wow, that was, that was there before. And look at it happening again. Sky Moore, although it wasn't something that uh, we had seen from him earlier this season, in fact, quite opposite, that could lead to something in the Super Bowl uh, next week, which, of course, we're all excited for as well. Yeah, I think that you bring up a great point with MVS, Sky Moore. Those were two, and they were recent, but it defined why the Chiefs are where they are, still alive, still playing for the Super Bowl. Hell, let's go all the way back to uh, – there was jokes about this when Chad Henney checked in the game, but yeah, they were they were ready for Chad Henney to be in that game thanks to uh, the, just the years with Alex Smith and mm-hmm. – just the years, next man they, years they've kept him as a veteran, too, yeah. on the team. If if Chad Henney's not ready to go in that game, if the Chiefs are down after Patrick Mahomes gets injured in the AFC Divisional round, they're not where they are today. And I think every team that makes it to the Super Bowl has five, six, seven moments that define who they are. And I think Buffalo and Cincinnati on the AFC side, they didn't have enough. They didn't have enough defining moments to get to the Super Bowl. On the NFC side, the Niners didn't have enough. The Cowboys didn't have enough. The Seahawks didn't have enough. And I think that's very telling that it's the culture, the foundation. We use those words all the time. Culture, foundation, coaching, quarterback. It all goes back to that. And if you have a great foundation, a strong culture, a Hall of Fame head coach, a Hall of Fame quarterback, it makes it easier to have those defining moments, to rack up those defining moments, and there certainly was more than a handful for the Kansas City Chiefs this season. We'll take our first break of the show. When we come back, let's preview some college basketball games tomorrow. Kansas will be on the road in Ames against Iowa State, and Kansas State will have a top-10 matchup against the Texas Longhorns. That's next on 94.5 FM and 1510 AM ESPN, Kansas City. Back here on The Shift on 94.5 FM and 1510 AM ESPN Kansas City. I'm your host, Jack Johnson, alongside Marco Marquez. Big games around college basketball tomorrow, and especially in the Big 12, which we always like to preview on a Friday. It'll be Kansas and Iowa State tipping off at 11 a.m. on ESPN. Texas Tech will be on the road at number 11 Baylor at noon on CBS. Number 15 TCU will be in Stillwater against the 13-9 Cowboys at 1 p.m. on ESPN+. Plus, Kansas State and Texas, a top-10 matchup. The 7th-ranked Wildcats and the 10th-ranked Longhorns will tip off at 3 p.m. on ESPN2. And Oklahoma will be in Morgantown against West Virginia at 7 p.m. on ESPN2. So let's start it off with round two between Kansas and Iowa State. Iowa State coming off back-to-back losses 
uh, to Missouri and Texas Tech, both on the road against the Tigers. They fell big by 17 in Columbia. And against the Red Raiders, a really, really uh, infuriating game if you're a Cyclones fan. A 23-point lead in the second half evaporated. And they lost to the Red Raiders, who were winless in conference play to that point, 80-77. to As for Kansas, following their three-game slide, in which they lost to Kansas State, TCU, and Baylor, they then beat Kentucky at Rupp Arena and then beat Kansas State at Allen Fieldhouse 90-78. to So Iowa State on a bit of a skid. Kansas has rebounded from their skid. How do we see this game going down on Saturday? There is no denying that Iowa State is one of the better defending teams in all of college basketball. They just are. I think they have the length. They are incredibly physical. They're not great offensively, but they want to keep you in those grinded-out type of rock fights. Now, when you get into a rock fight with Iowa State, you really have to be a damn good team and a team that can handle the environment you'll be playing in at Hilton to come out on top. And Iowa State has not lost at Hilton Coliseum this year. They just beat Kansas State last time they were at home, 80-76. to But there is a very telling thing about this recent three-game stretch about Iowa State. Iowa State, at their best, wins games with their defense. We've seen it all season long. When they played Texas at home, they won 78-67. Held a very talented, offensive-minded Texas team under 70. And they won by 11. Even when they lost to Oklahoma State, this is one of the few teams I have seen come out on top of a rock fight with Iowa State. They won 61-59, Oklahoma State that is. And that's, I think, what started this skit, was that Iowa State's lack of offense started to show a little bit. Now they rebounded from that Stillwater loss and beat Kansas State 80-76, to but we've now seen in back-to-back losses. The defense hasn't been there. They give up 78 to Missouri, 80 to Texas Tech. And Texas Tech is not good whatsoever putting the ball in the basket. In fact, they're just not a good team in general. The glaring thing, and I think this also comes about as to why they lost to Texas Tech, why they were not able to come back against Missouri, Iowa State is one of the worst free-throw shooting teams in the country. And I mean really, really bad. Kansas is not a good free-throw shooting team. They are 144th in the nation. They are successful 72.4% of the time. They're just not a very good free-throw shooting team. They are below average, for that matter. How bad is Iowa State? They are 318th in the nation. They shoot it at a rate of 66.3% from the charity stripe this year. Sub-70%. That's how bad Iowa State is at shooting from the free-throw line. It's why they can't hang on to leads, and it's why they can't come back. And with this physical and the way the game is called now in college basketball, you got to be able to hit free throws. You just have to. I mean, we saw Kansas and Kansas State on Tuesday night shoot a combined 71 free throws. If you can't make them, you're not going to win many games. Now, Iowa State's won a lot because T.J. is a great coach. They've got a great defense. But their offensive struggles have now sort of come about. They have been put into the light in a negative way that Iowa State, to win the conference, is going to have to have some surge offensively. They've got great players. 
They've got guys that can shoot it from deep. But they're not going to be able to win many shootouts. There's not going to be many times Iowa State wins when a game's in the mid to high 80s. Kansas has shown they can win games when it's in the 80s. Now, they've lost a couple. They lost to Kansas State in overtime, 83-82. But we saw against Kentucky, you know, hanging 80-plus. Iowa State's not going to win if Kansas puts up 75 or more. I just don't see it that way. Kansas can handle that environment. They've played in bigger games than the one they're going to play in tomorrow afternoon. It is going to be rocking in Hilton. Iowa State fans hate Kansas. I mean, I would say the majority of the Big 12, if not all of the Big 12, hates Kansas when they come into their own arena. And Iowa State desperately needs this win. They're still in second place in the Big 12. But coming off two bad performances, but in two of their last three games in the Big 12, they lost to two of the bottom teams in the conference. Texas Tech, Oklahoma State. And I really do believe that's what's going to define the winner of the Big 12, the champion of the Big 12. It's not how you play against Texas, Kansas State, Kansas, Baylor, Iowa State. It's not defined in those games. As crazy as that sounds, they will be defined on their performance against Oklahoma, Oklahoma State, West Virginia, and Texas Tech. The four teams that are not going to win the conference. It is going to be in those games who is really decided to be the champion. If you slip up, which everybody's going to, everybody is going to slip up against one of those teams. That's just bound to happen. You know, Kansas State has yet to go to Morgantown. Kansas State has yet to play in Stillwater. Kansas State has yet to play in Norman. Kansas, yet to play in Norman, yet to play in Stillwater. Yet to play Texas Tech again in Allen Fieldhouse. Those are all games that are going to be incredibly tough. And I think if you are the team that wins the majority of those games, maybe only slip up one time, that will be the team that wins this conference. That will be the team that can win this conference outright. And I don't think any team in the Big 12 is immune to losing to those other teams. So yes, this game on Saturday is vitally important for both teams. You don't want to have that fourth loss in conference play because I think if you have five losses and just five losses alone in conference play, you can win the conference outright. And that's only giving a one-game buffer to either one of these teams to win it outright. You can only lose one more time if you lose on Saturday. You lose six games, you're likely looking at a shared title. You lose seven, you're not winning the conference. And those that three-game losing streak hurt Kansas badly. Those losses to Tech and Oklahoma State hurt Iowa State. And now you have two teams at different spots, different momentums. Iowa State going the opposite direction in a negative way. Kansas going in a better direction, a more positive way. Having two big wins against Kentucky and Kansas State. So the Jayhawks and Cyclones will tip off early 11 a.m. on ESPN. This would be one of those more defining wins for Kansas if they can pull one out in Hilton Coliseum and complete a sweep of the Cyclones in 2022-2023. As for Kansas State and Texas, I mean, you it's very few times, it's very rare that you have the top four teams in the conference all playing each other on one day, on this Saturday. And Kansas State, coming off their loss to Kansas, need this one desperately too. I think more so than Texas does. Texas sits alone atop the Big 12 right now. But they also look at it and go, we can't be swept by Kansas State. It doesn't matter how good Kansas State is. 
if you expect to win the conference, at minimum, you have to split with the top four teams. You got to split against the Kansas State. You got to split against Kansas. You got to split against Baylor. You got to split against Iowa State. Texas understands that. And Texas has two losses this year in conference play Kansas State, Iowa State. Now, you're going to be in Manhattan, of course, a ridiculous, and I mean a ridiculous environment. Top 10 matchup, 3 p.m., ESPN 2, plenty of time to get to the game. I mean, this really feels like if Kansas State is going to show that not only can they compete at the top half of the conference, but win it. I think it's kind of been toyed with the last couple of weeks. You know, Kansas State, can they really win this conference outright or share a title? You beat Texas uh, even after your loss to Kansas, even after your loss to Iowa State. I put them in the driver's seat. You drop Texas down a peg. Yeah, Kansas or Iowa State still might be at the top of the conference. But if you sweep Texas, I, I don't see Kansas. I don't see Iowa State sweeping Texas. Kansas State got the hardest part out of their way in beating Texas and Austin and hanging 116. I don't see them having that type of performance again because I think Texas also was dealing with the situation with Chris Beard at the time. They were a little bit discombobulated. Not so much anymore. I don't think Texas is a team that is going to allow 100-plus points to Kansas State, even with it being in Manhattan. I could see this game being more low-scoring. I think Texas really is a great defensive team, and we've seen that now over the last couple of weeks. In their last five games, they are 3-2. and two. They lost to Tennessee and Iowa State, both top 15 teams, or top 20 teams. But when they beat West Virginia and Morgantown, held the Mountaineers to 61. When they beat Oklahoma State, they held them to 75. When they beat Baylor this last go-around, they held them to 71. They are a great defensive team. Now, Kansas State, in their losses... They allowed 80 and 90 to Iowa State and Kansas. To Texas Tech and beating them at home, they held the Red Raiders to 58. They gave up 82 to Kansas, but that was in overtime. Against Florida, 50. So when they've played at home, they've been much, much better defensively. Which is why I kind of think this is going to be a game decided in the 60s. Texas, the game, the game plan should be, all right, how are we going to handle Keontae Johnson? Are you doubling? Are you trusting your guys one-on-one? Or how can you prevent Marquise DeWell from his dribble drive, the penetration into the lane, and setting up his guys to score four or five feet around the rim? That's when Kansas State's at their best. Marquise DeWell penetrating, getting Keontae Johnson the ball one-on-one. That's how they're going to win this game. If Texas eliminates that, I don't trust Kansas State to win the game with Naquan Tomlin, David Gasson, Cam Carter, Bebe Ijiola, Ish Masood, Desi Sills. I don't see it. And if Texas can have that post-presence that I at least thought Florida was going to have. I thought Florida last weekend was going to have the post-presence with Castleton out there, a seven-footer. There just wasn't one. And Florida also couldn't shoot the ball. But Texas, they're big, they're fast, they're athletic. And they can definitely score with their two guards. You know, you have Marcus Carr. Marcus Carr has been absolutely phenomenal this year for Texas. He leads them in scoring with 16.7 points per game. Timmy Allen, also a great stretch four for Texas. But, man, I mean, this Texas team, top to bottom, can have all five guys in their lineup reach double figures. And they didn't even need that against Baylor. Only two of their guys scored in double figures, and those were the two guards you expected to. Or, excuse me, you had Timmy Allen score 18, and then Tyrese Hunter score 13. Marcus Carr only had five. And they won a game against Baylor in which Marcus Carr only had five. They can be balanced. They've got a great bench, I would say. I think one of the better benches in Big 12 play. Sir Jabari Rice had 21 against Baylor. And over the course of that entire game, 
against the Bears, their bench put up north of 30 points. K-State can't win that game if Texas is putting up 20-plus points from their bench. And Marcus Carr is due to have a bounce-back game. Tyrese Hunter didn't even have that great of a performance. 3 of 12 12 from deep, 5 of 17 from the floor. I mean, this Texas team can really beat you down with their backcourt. And Tyrese Hunter and Marcus Carr. Those two guys get going in the way they did against Kansas State the first go-around. It's going to come down to, can Keontae Johnson and Marquise Newell have ridiculous performances in the way they did in Austin? And remember back to that game, I want to say Keontae Johnson and Newell both had 30-plus points. I think it's going to be low scoring. A complete polar opposite in what we saw in that first matchup at the Moody Center. So Kansas State and Texas tipping off at 3 p.m. on ESPN2 tomorrow. Longhorns 10th in the country, Kansas State 7th. The Longhorns looking to build off their win against Baylor. Kansas State looking to bounce back from their loss to Kansas at Allen Fieldhouse on Tuesday. We'll take our final break of the show. When we come back, we will wrap it up with some fact or fiction. That's next on 94.5 FM and 1510 AM ESPN, Kansas City. We are back here on The Shift on 94.5 FM and 1510 AM ESPN Kansas City. I am your host, Jack Johnson, alongside Marco Marquez. So we are going to wrap up our week with some fact or fiction, five questions, five takes in under five minutes. Marco, fire away. All right, Jack, fact or fiction, the Royals keep the all-powder blue look the entire season. You know, it's it can be tough to tell right now. I believe I just saw an article from Pete Gradhoff of the KC Star saying that it's a limited time look. Mm. That one Royals official, I want to say, said they are going to use it, maybe sparingly. Uh, I don't know why, though, you'd bring them back if you didn't expect to use them all season long. I don't know why you need to go back to the powder blue top and the white pants. If you have these powder blue pants, might as well keep them for your Sunday uniforms. I mean, that's what the fans want. I've never understood negotiations and disputes with uniforms. If they look good, why not keep them? I mean, I think your City Connect uniforms look fantastic. I think your powder blue, the all-powder blue look fantastic. One of the best in baseball. Your white homes, fine. The gray roads or the blue roads, I'd actually get rid of the the grays on the road. I think the font doesn't look that good anymore with it. Mm -hmm. I thought when it was in cursive with Kansas City across, it looked sharp. Just keep the navy blue look. Or not the navy blue, the, the, the royal blue. So you have the white homes, the royal blue, the City Connect unis and the all-powder blue look. But all season long, fact, I think it'll be there, but how many times they'll use it, maybe sparingly, maybe four or five times on the year for special occasions. But, man, just keep them all the time. I don't know why. Maybe the better question would be how many times will they use them. But at least for the end of the year, I'll go fact. And the next year, I'm hoping so. But for right now, it'll say fact for the rest of the year. Fact or fiction, the Chiefs' most defining moment was the loss to Cincinnati in the regular season or playoffs? Uh Regular season, because, yeah, we'll go fact on this one. I think because they met again in such a high-magnitude type of game in the AFC Championship, I would have loved to say the Colts game was more defining because then the Chiefs went on to only lose two more games for the rest of the year, and that was to the number two and the number three seed in the AFC. But I feel like it has to be Cincinnati. That was when I think a lot of fans were down, and as good as the Chiefs were at that point, you felt like, man, are they ever going to beat Cincinnati? Is that just a team that's always going to have their number? And it was proven that the next time around, the Chiefs finally got the best of them. There wasn't smack talk all week long. Different defensive game plan. The offensive line stepped up, and you exercised those demons. 
at Arrowhead Stadium to go on to the Super Bowl for the third time in four years. So I will go fact. That was the most defining moment for the Chiefs in 2022-2023. Fact or fiction, four of the five starters score in double figures for KU. I think Jalen Wilson will score in double figures. I think Kevin McCuller will probably get in double figures. I think K.J. Adams will. Is Grady Dick due for another breakout performance? I think fact. Man, maybe it'll be three of the five. I don't know if K.J. Adams will get there or Kevin McCuller because Iowa State's really good defensively. Oh, this is tough. Uh, you know what? I'll go I'll go four of the five. I do think that Jalen Wilson easily gets it. I think Grady Dick easily gets it. And it comes down to what Kevin McCuller or Dewan Harris can give you. Because I do think of the starting five, the only one I'm not really confident in is going to be Dewan Harris. Kevin McCuller, if he can just get to the free throw line, he's going to get a lot of points there, at least you know, 10 to 14 points. So I'll go fact. I think of the starters tomorrow, four of the five will get it. The only one that not scoring double figures would be Dewan Harris. Fact or fiction, K-State will win if they hold Texas to under 70 points. I think it's the other way around. I think if Texas holds K-State under 70 points, they're going to win that game. K-State needs it to be, I think, in the 80s because they can score, just about as any, score as well as just about anybody in the conference. Texas can... You know, hang 80, 90 points. They've got the backcourt to do it. I just am a little bit concerned about K-State being able to replicate what they did in Austin. Of course, 116 is not going to be doable. But if you get this game a high-scoring one around 80, 85, I like K-State in this one. But under 70, I'll go with Texas. Purdue finishes the regular season with less than three losses. I'll go fiction on that. They're bound to slip up a couple of times before the start of the NCAA tournament. They're a good team, but they also haven't played anybody. So I'll go fiction. Purdue will have more than three losses by the time we hit March Madness. There is Ray Charles, so it's time to go. That wraps up another edition of The Shift on 94.5 FM and 1510 AM ESPN Kansas City. I've been your host, Jack Johnson, alongside Marco Marquez. You enjoy the weekend, and we'll talk to you on Monday, Kansas City.